0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The best way to overcome this and make sure that if this happens again, and there's pretty good likelihood that, you know, pandemics are not going to be gone forever, so we're going to have to do some analysis here a lot of questions need to be answered so we are ready and prepared for the next time and one of them of course is how well does the vaccination program work with residents in long-term care homes now we know that they were at the top of the list or near the top of the list when it came to the vaccine and that's good uh we know how terrible uh the last year has been for the residents and staff frankly, in long-term care so a study was well worthwhile and something that i was hoping the government was going to do sooner than later and they made the announcement earlier Uh, the government of canada through their covid19 immunity task force is supporting a study is actually being led by McMaster University researchers. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Don Bowish, who is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Bill.
0: As I mentioned in the preamble, this is so important. I mean, we have been focused uh, on long-term care. It's been a a very, very traumatic situation for everybody involved, uh, residents, staff, family members, and and everyone else. Uh, And we were so pleased to know that the vaccine program started to roll out. But uh, putting the uh, the, the vaccine in the arm is one thing, but tracking it and seeing just how effective it's going to be is a key part of this, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. So one of the features of being somebody who lives in, old, uh, in long-term care is that they're older, they're on a lot of medications, many of which suppress the immune system, and they're often frail. And the process of being frail actually really changes your immune response. So we know in general people who are in long-term care don't Respond as well to vaccines as younger people. And in this pandemic, this is problematic for two reasons. One, it means that somebody who's been vaccinated might not be fully protected and so might still get infections. And in fact, we've actually seen outbreaks in long term care facilities and fully vaccinated residents. Um, two, we don't understand the longevity. Older adults sometimes lose their antibodies quicker than younger people. So we need to understand do they need a booster? And, you know, we can even start to make decisions if we start finding that, you know, not everyone's protected. Maybe instead of two doses, they need three doses, or maybe we need to to change some of our dosing strategy to help keep them safe. So this is going to be really, really important to understand how to keep long-term care residents safe. Um, These vaccines have been much more efficacious than I had dreamed of. Had this been an influenza pandemic, I think we might have been seeing a very different uh, number of outbreaks after vaccination, but they still need monitoring and care because we need to keep these people safe, and we need to help make good decisions, uh, help their families and the homes make good decisions
0: about keeping them safe. Let's. Yeah, I want to talk about the efficacy of this. Too. By the way, we had a discussion yesterday with the. the people in uh, Quebec that are manufacturing the, the vaccine there and they're heading into third mm-hmm. stages. you know doctor 100 mm-hmm. percent effective so in the first two studies th- that's remarkable uh th- that not just that we've developed vaccines but the you know they they seem to be as effective as they can but how do you track that in in a in, a, in an aging mm-hmm. population and especially in a, in a plus 80 population uh mm-hmm. like that to understand just how effective and for how long they're going to be What what are the what are the, the things that you look for
1: Well, the quick and easy thing we look for is antibody levels. You know, one of the things that I think is sort of a little bit hard to explain is this concept we have in immunology called immune correlates of protection. So we always, once we have a vaccine out in the public, out in the world, we need to understand what. Features of the immune response are the ones that protect us and the the easiest one to measure is the amount of of antibodies people make. So we're already starting to see hints that some people who don't have fully functioning immune systems don't make enough antibodies. So for example, there was just a uh, study came out of the UK that showed that uh, cancer patients, as an example, once they got their first dose, they did not produce a lot of antibodies so would not have been protected. But once they got their second dose, they were generally Okay. So these, we'll be looking at the levels of antibody and the quality of these antibodies. So one of the things that older adults and frail older adults often, they can make antibodies, but they aren't as sticky. They don't bind the virus in the same way and stop it from causing infection. So we'll be looking at the stickiness of these antibodies. And we'll also be looking at their ability to create what we call memory immune cells. So one of the things about uh, vaccines is they they sort of teach and educate uh, your immune cells to sort of memorize that pathogen. And older adults sometimes don't have very good memory responses. So that means that they can't call back those antibodies or that immune response when they need it in the future. So those are the three major factors we'll be looking at. But we'll also be keeping a very tight eye, a very close eye on any introduction of new variants uh, of the virus. Because unfortunately, we didn't get in there early enough to stop COVID entirely and what we're seeing is some of these these variants that sort of can can thrive when we don't have a, the optimal immune response might be getting into the homes. So we'll be looking at that very closely too because then we might need to change our vaccination strategy uh, to keep older adults uh, safe from these variants.
0: On that point, uh, we, we know about the U.K. variant and the South African, and uh, they all get names. Uh, are those variants going to continue, doctor, even after the, the vaccination mm-hmm. program? And, uh, COVID's not going to go. I mean, it's a coronavirus, and, and, you know, they're there someplace, and they can be latent, mm-hmm. but they're still there. But are they constantly evolving like that?
1: Yeah, you have to imagine from the virus's viewpoint, this is do or die. If they don't find a way to evade, you know, a fully vaccinated population, then it's it's die. And so this is where Darwinian evolution comes into play, just like anything else. So these viruses are going to be adapting so that they can survive and be passed on. And this just speaks to the importance of getting the whole world vaccinated, right? You can imagine we have entire continents that have barely seen a dose of vaccine. The virus is ripping through those. And so there's lots of chances for a new variant to be the case. And unfortunately, it looks like we are going to end up in a world where we're going to have to have, like, like influenza. We're going to have to have surveillance where we look all over the world and say, okay, which of these variants are coming up? Let's design a vaccine to keep people safe from those. And uh, unless we come in with a really heavy hammer and knock out this this virus everywhere so that there's no virus to mutate and become a variant, we're looking at a long, long haul.
0: That's why I was going to say. I know a lot of medical professionals are, are a little reticent to make the comparison between mm-hmm. influenza and this because a lot of people tried to confuse the two. Uh, but mm-hmm. we get an annual flu shot uh, because I okay. guess there's variants. I mean, there's different strains of flu all the time. And Is, mm-hmm. is that a possibility or a probability with, with the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, you know, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I was a little bit optimistic that it wouldn't that we wouldn't have these variants because uh, this virus doesn't mutate very quickly. The influenza virus is a fast mutator, so it's always hard to get on top of that. And we were all sort of optimistic because in general, coronaviruses aren't good mutators, so they, they have a hard time making variants. But uh, like you said, there are some coronaviruses that cause common colds, and and they adapted to evade human immune systems very similar to the way this one is. And so, so now it does look like we're going to have to really keep top, on top Top of these variants. And we're already seeing that you know some of the vaccines that worked so well with the original strain work a little bit less well with the variants. So they're going to have to be tweaked to deal with those as well. But honestly, the best thing we could do is go in with a heavy hammer and try to get the viral load as low as possible. These variants are a one in hundreds of millions of chance. So if there's no virus, uh, the chance becomes even lower. So we need to be super aggressive with our vaccinations right now
0: you're talking about the the environment within the, the homes themselves and and and, mm-hmm. and just i guess by definition as you mentioned doctor an awful lot of the residents in these places are on various medications yeah. uh does that have any impact at all on the efficacy of the vaccine the fact that i mean if i go to get a prescription i my pharmacist says hey you're taking this uh you better be careful of that you better you know they, in other words they, they they're mm-hmm. checking all this stuff uh, we don't have that capability but uh, have you found so far that uh, that there's a concern about uh some medication that they might be on which could actually impact the efficacy of the virus of the vaccine
1: Yeah, this is a really important question because to have a response to a vaccine, you have to have a strong immune response. So anything that suppresses your immune response is a little bit problematic. Now, the good news is that these vaccines are very good. For for example, if you're taking like ibuprofen or over the dose aspirin or things like that, those uh, have no effect on vaccine efficacy. So there's no reason to worry about most medications, but unfortunately, when you do a clinical trial, you don't include people who have suppressed immune systems in them. So we're really missing data for people who have, um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune conditions and have to be on really powerful immunosuppressants. And certainly, our long-term care residents often are on those kinds of Of drugs, So if there's anyone who's going to be unable to mount a strong immune response to these vaccines, it will likely be those people. And those are the ones we're going to be keeping a really careful eye on. Like I said, we'll look at their ability to mount a response quickly, but also to keep that response, because you need a healthy immune response to keep keep those antibodies in your system for a really long time. And so those are the people I have my eye on as the ones who I I worry are going to be the most vulnerable to infections.
0: What do you do in a situation like that? I, 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 I know we're kind of drifting a little bit, but I get a lot of questions every time an expert like yourself comes on, and I get all these emails. Well, do, ask her about this. Or, uh, <laughs> if somebody with an autoimmune disease, essentially by definition, that means your body is fighting itself, uh, and, and, and you know, which is why you have you know the antibody suppressants oftentimes in the medication. Uh, does that suppress the vaccine's efficacy? You, I, we just addressed that, but uh, I mean. It, do the do you, do you err on the side of caution and say don't get the vaccine, or do you just try to track it and and uh, and see exactly just what you can do? I mean, the variants on within the vaccine, if, if there's an option for them in, in there, but mm. it it just seems as if they're you know they're, they're up against a brick wall here when it comes to the, yeah. just how effective it's going to be.
1: So in general a little bit of an immune response is better than no immune response. So even if somebody who is on one of these drugs were to get the vaccine, the concern would be that they wouldn't be, you know, have the perfect uh, immune response, but they still probably have some immune response. And we, we know that even if you don't have a full, total, strong antibody response as a young, healthy person would, those antibodies you do generate might be enough to keep you out of the hospital or they might be enough to keep you from dying. So in general, unless there's, um, there's, it gets a little bit complicated because different classes of vaccines we have different recommendations for. As an example, we don't uh, generally met, uh, recommend um, the AstraZeneca vaccine to people who are uh, immunocompromised, but we believe that the Pfizer and Moderna are really good choices for them. So this is why it's important to monitor because it could be that we need to give them an extra dose to get them right over the edge into that healthy protective range. Or sometimes people in these conditions have sort of um, drug holidays where they go off their drug for various reasons, and that's a great time to come in there with a the vaccination. So it kind of, it's it's, it's a death call. People definitely have to talk to the rheumatologist or their, their doctor about what's the right decision and what the current recommendation is for them, but we are definitely hoping to have more studies looking specifically at these people to understand what is the right decision. In general, I would say that the concern is not that you shouldn't get the vaccine, it's just that your response to it might not be uh, 100%.
0: Uh, we should mention, by the way, that McMaster, of course, is, is going to be doing this, but th- with a number of partners uh, Schlegel Villages, yeah. uh, St. Joe's Healthcare System, uh, and Health Sciences uh, North Research Institute, all involved in this. How, how broad based is this going to be, Doctor? I mean, we've spent a lot of time here talking about the vaccine itself mm-hmm. and the effect it's going to have on the body, but are, are you going beyond that to t- to when you're talking about long term care studies, about uh, the, the physical environment and other things involved in there uh, that, uh, that may be factors in, in making people more susceptible?
1: Oh, I love this question so much. So we have incredible partners. The homes that we have 23 partner homes from Windsor to Milton. And this allows us to do many things. First of all, it allows us to understand what are the features of homes that uh, promote uh, infections or, or protect them from infections. So, as an example, my colleague on the grant, Andrew Costed, published a paper early in the uh, epidemic showing that for-profit homes were more likely to have infections than non-profit homes. We also knew that if you have four people in a room, that's that's a recipe for disaster. And so, by feeding this information back to the Ministry of Health and other policymakers, we were able to. Uh, that fewer people per room can stop infection spreading. So we need to feed back more information on this. Another huge issue in the context of long-term care that's um, been a problem for spreading other infections that haven't got the public's attention was the fact that we rely on part-time workers who travel between homes so much. These people are often underpaid. Um, they don't have paid sick days. So, And because they're sort of eking out a wage based on multiple part-time jobs, they'll, they'll go even if they have, or they might work even if they have symptoms. And of course, with this infection, you can spread it even if you don't have symptoms. So locking down and stopping uh, people going between homes is a really important infectious disease control mechanism. So there's actually two factors to this study. The one is understanding the facility factors that make someone uh, susceptible or vulnerable, but, and then studying their Individual immune factors. And we're hoping that by feeding this information back to our partners, they can help make good decisions. A simple example would be if we were to look at the antibody responses of three residents, and we found that two uh, had we thought would be protected from infection, and one might still be vulnerable you might put them in a room together because the chance of those those two protected people won't be able to spread the infection or, or less likely to spread the infection. But you certainly wouldn't put three vulnerable people in a room together. That would be a recipe for disaster. So by feeding them back this inflammation, we're hoping to be able to stop these infections. And as well, we're also doing saliva-based testing of all the essential visitors, the staff, the residents themselves, so that we're hoping to find the virus quickly, even in people who don't have symptoms and prevent infections that way.
0: I, I know it's controversial when we talk about private versus public institutions and, and mm-hmm. some people feel very skittish especially some people in government seem to, to be pretty skittish about this but it's got to be part of the discussion uh, because the statistics are there and i've talked to a number of people that that, that are in these facilities and number of people that are advocating for these and uh it, it's 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 got to be factored in here i mean because you're talking about basically your quality of life aren't you uh, mm-hmm. it's it's not just the physical contact it's it's the physical environment uh the hvac system uh, how many people mm-hmm. in the room the quality of food. I mean, if, if, if you're not getting what you're supposed to be getting to be a, maintain a, a healthy lifestyle, even at that age, uh, you're going to be more susceptible, aren't you? Especially at
1: that age. You know, it's so important. Like you said, diet, incredibly important for keeping older adults healthy. And unfortunately, sometimes that's the first thing to, to go in some of these facilities. And also the social contact, you know, people... Yeah need to see other people, they need to be able to see their family members. All these things are so incredibly important. And, and you know, I think the fact that Canada has not had a strong regulatory arm for for having some strict rules for long-term care is we are seeing the consequences of that now. We need to have frequent inspections. We need to have really high standards. And, and you know, I have so much sympathy for all the people in our province who are trying to make decisions about you know, a loved one who needs that kind of care because it's a really scary time. To, to be making those decisions, and so we need to be able to feed back the information so policymakers and government can make these homes absolutely safe. And we need to make them affordable. I mean, let's face it—you know, some of the top quality, high—you know, some of the homes that are so uh, desirable are just out of the budgets of, of most of us. And so that's a huge factor as well.
0: How are you going to ensure that uh, the, the government gets eyes on this? I'd I like to, th- you know, part B should be, are they going to act on it? Uh, but, but once you finish the report and you've got your final report all said and done, uh, how do you access government to make sure that this becomes part of their debate?
1: We did include some government partners in our grants because we wanted to give them this information quickly and we want to give it to them as we have it. We don't want to wait till the very end. We want them to be able to make decisions right now because this pandemic is not over. So we've included them as partners. And uh, my colleagues and I are loud and proud supporters of long-term care and we believe really strongly we'll probably invite ourselves back to your show and give you the report so you can share that with all all your, your viewers who are making these difficult decisions about their loved ones in long-term care. So we will be working with policymakers. We'll be, we'll be sharing with the public. We have um, groups of uh, retirement communities and older adults who are very keen to hear this. We're working with the Lung Health Foundation who's going to spread uh, our findings to to all their uh, constituents. And uh, we want people to be able to make uh to have this information, to advocate to their MPPs and their MPs about how we need uh, more controls and we need better long-term care. Because I think collectively as a society, Canada's huge loss of life in long-term care is our deep, enduring shame, and we can't let this happen again.
0: Absolutely. Well, a number of people, including this program, have been advocating for this for quite some time. I look forward to the final report. And, yes, you will be back. I'd love to have you back in the program, Doctor, to talk about uh, the report itself and your findings on this. Thank you so much for the time today. And, listen, good luck with this. We'll stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much. Take care, and thanks for having me.
0: Take care. Dr. Don Bowdish, of course, uh, from McMaster University, uh, among many partners, uh, doing this study about long-term care, so overdue and so important. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900-CHML.